Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio from the Byline Times. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the upsum of Meghan and Harry on Netflix, a documentary series that asks tough questions of the monarchy and the media, two institutions who, if this series is to be believed, are incestuously entwined in the second tranche of episodes recently released by netflix volume two if you will we heard claims that aides of harry's brother prince william leaked and planted stories as a trade-off to prevent negative stories appearing about william and kate we heard that a letter Meghan markle wrote to her father was leaked to the press with extracts appearing in the mail on sunday the couple also said that they believed a lawsuit with the paper's publishers, the Associated Press, may have caused Meghan to have a miscarriage. And they said that the royal family wouldn't allow her to seek help when she felt suicidal. Far from prompting deep self-examination amongst the press, Volume 2 has unleashed another torrent of hate against the Sussexes, with Jeremy Clarkson writing in The Sun that he hates Meghan Markle more than serial killer Rose West and imagines her being paraded naked through the streets while crowds chant shame and throw lumps of excrement at her. We'll hear from US-based freelance writer and royal commentator, R.S. Locke about this, but I'd love to hear from you as well. If you're listening to this and you want to get involved, just tap the microphone in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen. That only works if you're listening on your phone and you've got the Twitter app downloaded. And we'd welcome a proper, open, grown-up conversation about this. What I will say, though, is that we're not going to tolerate trolls, but if you've got stuff to say, stuff that is a, a meaningful contribution, we'd love very much to hear from you. And before we get cracking as well, just a reminder, the Byline Radio is brought to you from the Byline Times. Now, unlike much of the media in the UK, Byline Times and Byline Radio don't have any rich individual behind us. We don't have any hedge fund or corporate backer. We rely on ordinary listeners like you taking out subscriptions to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. It's a great read and the paper has content that you won't see anywhere else. And if you take out a subscription, which starts from as little as £3 a month, then you are helping to fund Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast as well. I'm delighted to say also we're joined by Mick Wright. Mick is a British-based media commentator. He is Broken Bottle Boy on Substack as well. Uh, just to say, though, if you do want to take out a subscription, head over to bylinetimes.com, a subscription I reckon would make an excellent Christmas present. So even if you've already got a subscription for yourself, maybe think about taking out one for a friend or a loved one. Full details about subscriptions over at bylinetimes.com. Let's welcome then Mick Wright and first R.S. Locke. Uh, R.S., being in the United States, are, are you aware of this article by Jeremy Clarkson in response to volume two of the Netflix series? Yes, I read it initially as a screenshot of just the portion where he talks about wanting to see Megan paraded through the streets naked uh, and throwing the excrement at her. And then 
subsequently people have shared more of the overall article. And honestly, I was shocked to find that the rest of the article was actually worse. I didn't think it could get worse than that screenshot, but that was one of the most horrific things that I've read in the British press. And that's saying something. (laughs) It certainly is. And I'm just thinking, RS, you know, uh, I've described at the top of this broadcast, the, the nature of the complaints made in volume two. And of course, you're not going to expect the UK media to like this very much. But Megan talks about having had suicidal feelings. She talks about her suspicion that a lawsuit against Associated Newspapers, the publishers of the Mail on Sunday, caused a miscarriage. And as well as the more general concerns about the leaking of stories to harm the Sussexes. And I just made that observation that you might think that even if the the British media don't like this, it might prompt some self-examination. Instead, we have, I mean, this is, this is, the unleashing of the dogs, the most ferocious hatred of people who have dared to put their head above the parapet and criticise the media. I find that very, very frightening. I do as well, but I'd say it's not surprising. I think what we, you described it as kind of unleashing of the dogs, and I know others have said kind of dogs of war, like, but we've seen this escalate from the very beginning of when Harry and Meghan's relationship became public. You know, I think back to some of the early reporting within that first week when their relationship was revealed. I can't remember which columnist it was, but basically she said that the only reason that Harry was with Meghan was because American women were better at sex acts than British women. So to go from there to where we are now with parading Meghan naked through the street... You know, it took us six years to get here, but we're here. And I think that rhetoric and the just the language that has been allowed over time to dehumanize Megan with everything from talking about her as a brazen hussy. You know, we had an article in the Daily Mail not three months ago calling her a dumb mutt. You know, what I think in the British press people think about is dog whistles. I had debates of people in my mentions of, well, did she really mean dumb mutt as it relates to Megan or was she just talking about the new adopted dog? And it's like, if I have to explain and break that down for you, it just tells you where we are as a a society that there can still be this type of, I don't know if it's willful obtuseness or ignorance or if it's people such as Jeremy Clarkson who think they can write this and play it off as a joke. It's the same thing that Danny Baker did with the the cartoon likening Megan and Harry's son Archie to a chimpanzee. There was actual debates about whether that was racist or not. And I remember watching Afua Hirsch on one of the Sky News debate shows, getting into it with Nick Ferrari and others, and brought to just heartache by seeing her as the one lone black woman on that panel trying to explain racism to the other panelists who purposefully <laughs> were choosing not to see it. So I think, again, yes, there is a escalation and a worsening of the discourse around Meghan and Harry. And I would argue that some of that has also been 
led by the royal family and friends of the royal family, Jeremy Clarkson being one who was a friend of Queen Consort Camilla, but also, you know, in a recent article coming out this last week, you have a friend of Williams who says the family effing hates Megan. Like, when is this language <laughs> allowed against a member of the royal family by other members of the royal family and printed in the press? So you have the combination of someone saying it, someone writing it, and an editor saying, yep, that sounds good. Send it to print. And again, I wonder when do we acknowledge that by letting the royal reporters be the ones who not only set the narrative with the articles they wrote, but then also respond to the criticism of the narrative, you basically have this unending loop of them being both defendant, (laughs) judge, and jury. It's been definitely an interesting couple of weeks. RS is going to be with us for the duration of this space. RS Lock, US-based Royal Observer, freelance writer. I'm going to go to one or two of your calls as well very shortly. I know Ada is waiting to speak to us, but I do want to bring in Mick Wright as well. Mick Wright, broken bottle boy on Substack, well worth checking out. And Mick, in the name of free speech, we have the most vicious attack. And there are various issues relating to the documentary series that I want to explore. But this reaction from Clarkson is, to me, vile, almost beyond belief. It would be beyond belief if I hadn't previously seen some of the behaviour over the years of the British tabloid press. Yeah, and of the British press generally, because the thing about, I said this in the previous space we did, but what will be done here as well is if it does feel to the press and media in general that there is enough pushback to what Jeremy Clarkson said, it will be framed as, well, this is the tabloid press, right? But Jeremy Clarkson is a Sunday Times columnist as well, right? Another publication under the News UK banner. An interesting thing that I I included today in the edition of the newsletter I put out today was uh, Catherine O'Donnell, who is a a trans writer and, and a former night editor of the Scotland edition of the Times. She uh, tweeted today an email that came out within the disclosure around her ultimately unsuccessful case for employment um, discrimination tribunal that she had. There was an email exchange that came out within the disclosure of that from Rebecca Brooks replying to Catherine O'Donnell's complaint about a column from 2016 that Jeremy Clarkson wrote about trans people, very aggressive, that implied, you know, that they were scamming the NHS and that they were all criminals, all this kind of thing. And Rebecca Brooks had written to other news executives at News UK saying, oh, well, you know, Jeremy, he he upsets everyone, the Welsh, Greenies, the Scottish, you know, that's what's brilliant about him. That's his genius. That's what we need to know about this, is that Jeremy Clarkson is enabled by people within these organisations Um, The people who write this kind of thing are enabled by a whole institution of people. When Jeremy Clarkson was finally dismissed from the BBC, not because he said the N-word in 2014, but because he physically assaulted a a producer in 2015, the then Director General said, oh, well, you know, um, it's with great regret that we have to let him go. You know, it's just incredible to me. Even as the man is dismissed 
for physically assaulting and racially abusing a producer. The producer was Irish, so it was insults based on his nationality. Um, they said, oh, it's great sadness that we let him go. Jeremy, you know, Jeremy Clarkson exists within a world where no true consequences exist for him. It's also worth remembering, of course, Rebecca Brooks, the chief executive of News UK, was part of the same social circle as Jeremy Clarkson and the former Prime Minister David Cameron, all part of the same social circle. You know, he exists at a very high level in British society. And I have to say, his Wikipedia page has a section called Controversies. It's got four subheadings at this point. And I'm sorry to tell people in this space, but what will happen, as much as we are genuinely and rightly upset about this, it will be added to his controversy section in his Wikipedia. And within a few weeks, it will be forgotten about and he will continue to be a columnist for The Sun and The Sunday Times with no pushback against this. And that is appalling. Really good to hear from you, Mick. Stay there, please. Uh, stay with us, as uh, RS will as well. Let's bring in uh, Ada, who wants to join our conversation. Hello, Ada. Good evening to you. How are you doing? Yeah, I've kind of been agreeing with what everyone's saying. And I think one of the reasons why there aren't consequences for this sort of thing is because Megan is completely like dehumanised. I was just thinking about Rachel Johnson's article back in 2016, I think it was, the now with now infamous you know exotic DNA calling her mum from the the wrong side of the tracks. That article was written basically as like here's the reason why I don't think this woman that I don't know is the right person for Prince Harry, a man that she didn't know. And then I think it was at the beginning of this year, Rachel Johnson wrote a piece that was sympathetic to Ghislaine Maxwell. I just I don't understand. Well, okay, no, I do understand. But there's like a different level of, I guess, humanity. The people that they hang around with, that social circle, no matter what they do, they still manage to see the person in them. And I don't think that's the same for Megan, but also in general for marginalized people. The bar is just way lower of what people who have the power to write these things will tolerate. And so just Megan being mixed race, being outspoken, having a mum that wasn't from a middle-class background, that was enough for someone to write an article saying that you shouldn't marry this boy that I don't know. It's absurd, isn't it, really? Yeah. I think it would just be kind of slightly funny and a little bit odd and a bit of a, a weird commentary on the strangeness of the British media, if that's all it were. But there is unquestionably this layer of race as well. And I know that in the documentary series, the couple were agonised, really, by the straight out of Compton headline, for example, which, I mean, it's wrong on so many levels. It, it's inaccurate and it kind of is an attempt to slur Megan with a negative connotation of a, of a particular suburb, but it also reinforces the negative stereotype of Compton itself. I mean, that's just one example, isn't it, of how race has been marbled all the way through the conversation around the Sussexes, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think most people remember the almost straight out of Compton because it was kind of the most famous. But the one I remember that came off the back of that story which I think is even worse, is the gangster royalty story. So it was like Harry to marry into gangster royalty, which 
I think for me was worse because it directly implicated Megan in like a criminal life for no reason. Like what makes her gangster? The fact that you thought that she was from Compton, even if she had been from Compton, there's no link there between her and criminality. Ada, great to speak to you. Thank you for joining in uh, Byline Radio. Let's speak to Jarrell. Jarrell, hello. Welcome to Byline Radio. You're on. Hello. Hi, good evening. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to say, one of the things that's really been frustrating me following this today is how Clarkson has done that thing that a lot of writers out here do, where they make it so shocking and outrageous that it allows people to then try and defend it on the grounds of, well, he's clearly joking. He clearly doesn't literally stay up at night thinking about seeing her tarred and feathered through the streets, etc. But in doing that, we're speaking so much about that, that we're missing a lot of the really insidious, I want to call them dog whistles, but they're more than that. Like the article opens with something about us all liking Harry when he was off flying helicopters in Afghanistan and partying with hookers, is the phrase Clarkson uses. But then some actress appears with the promise of lurid bedroom acts or something. That yeah. is misogyny 101. The idea of like the exotic foreign woman who's tempting our noble hero and like debasing them with sexuality and stuff. And it's stuff like that that will go unmissed in a lot of the coverage of this. So I've seen some debates that almost do Clarkson's jobs for him by mm. focusing so much on whether he literally meant that or the Game of Thrones reference and stuff like that. What he's done is revealed a lot of the very common ways that Megan is dehumanised. And not just Megan, but lots of other women and people of colour as well. Ava, who has been a contributor to these discussions that we've had on the podcast and Byline Radio, has spoken about that, you know, the sense that, particularly for black women, if you are in any sense a public figure and are seen to step out of line, yeah. the, the example of Megan is, do so at your peril because you will be utterly traduced by the British media. You, you won't simply be criticised, you know, as you may well be fairly, if you've done something that people don't like or that is wrong, it will be more than that. And RS mentioned this. This is the article. Somebody's very kindly tweeted a link to it. This is from the Tattler, and this was in relation to Harry and, and Meghan, but saying that some British men like some American women for one very specific reason – Closure is now if you're of a delicate disposition, saying American girls will give blowjobs way earlier than British girls because they don't consider it sex. Again, there's this kind of element of sexualization that's brought into the relationship, a prurient sexualization that's brought into this relationship that is not brought into the relationship of William and Kate. Why is that question mark, you know? Kate is always elegance, class. There can literally just be a photo of her standing outside in a raincoat and people just say, look, she just exudes <laughs> elegance and class, which is basically just a synonym for whiteness. And Megan's like, there have been pieces in the sun from so-called body language experts. And it's all that same nonsense. It's Megan exudes sexuality. It's all just really old school, misogynistic and racist nonsense. Um, for my sins, I follow <laughs> Carol Malone. Uh, who writes in the Express. Uh, she's really outspoken on this. And in the latest article, she said, Megan's been really clever by leaving all of the vicious comments, the nasty stuff for Harry. So Megan doesn't say anything negative in the documentary. All the nasty stuff is said by Harry. 
And it made me think, so she can't win here because if she says bad things, it's Meghan's trash in the royal family. If she doesn't say anything and it's Harry, God forbid you could think that maybe he actually has these opinions himself. No, of course, it must have all come from her. And it's just this weird fascination we have with kind of claiming people and claiming to know them as well. This idea that we all knew Harry and that he somehow changed from the person that we knew is nonsense. We didn't know him at all. We knew the person that the media was telling us about, but we didn't know this person any more than we know him now. But it's always framed as she's done something to our Harry. And that thing is a bit of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. You know, it's uh, her wild sexual ways, you know. Yeah. It's at least part of the subtext of this uh, not very deep subtext. Um, Daryl, it's been great to speak to you. Thank you for joining in Byline Radio. RS, this was a, a track I hadn't intended to go down, but I do think it's quite interesting. Of The Tatler article doesn't specifically refer to women of colour. It refers to American women generally uh, and their uh, preference for blowjobs. But it's in the context of Meghan and Harry. That's what the article's about. And obviously there's a reference to sexualization in this Clarkson piece as well. And this contrast between how Meghan is portrayed and how Kate is portrayed, sort of almost virginal, even though Kate has had children. Again, like so much of this conversation, would be comic if it wasn't slightly tragic. Well, and it also is obvious. These are the things that have been in the press from, as I've said, from the beginning and really plays on very obvious and historic racist tropes. The sexualization plays on the Jezebel trope of Black women. Um, again, we kind of go back historically, who women who were enslaved being temptresses who turned their slave masters, you know, basically tempted them. And so the slave master raped them against their own free will. That's really kind of the, the history and the heritage around this trope. To see it used very broadly against, you know, Megan, as you have commentators, whether it be Angela Levin or others who basically are saying this enchantress has seduced Harry. And I think even uh, Sarah Vine in her most recent article last week about the docuseries said very much the same. It is very obvious. And again, these are the things that aren't dog whistles, but have been in the press and allowed to maintain with no challenge at all. We finally get to the point where nobody can deny it with this Jeremy Clarkson article, but it really is a pattern that has been allowed to manifest. That's when I think Harry made the point about it became clear that the palace wasn't going to protect her. That's the piece that he's talking about, is when you see this undercurrent of viciousness and nobody steps in. It occurred to me that if for folks who remember the Hillary Mantel article where she talked about Kate as a plastic princess, or a, a, I think there was another reference to her as a mannequin, and you had British, <laughs> the prime minister at the time, step in and defend Kate. Whereas for Megan, it's the prime minister's sister who had the exotic DNA article. So to me, that just shows the juxtaposition of how these two women are viewed. And there's very much, I think somebody else alluded to this whole virgin versus whore dynamic that has been 
portrayed in terms of the characterization of, of Kate versus Megan. And we've had even other journalists who have been on the royal engagement press pack, but not necessarily the royal rota that traditionally covers the royal family, have talked about how Meghan is talked about by reporters in the press pack. And the fact that they talk about she's too sexy for the royal family, Um, you know, talking about her in terms, again, that sexualization and sexual harassment within the press pack that made other female reporters feel uncomfortable. On their last engagement, leaving Westminster Abbey, you have people talking about the photoshopping of Megan by royal photographers who were in the press pack based on the same type of characterization of her being the evil witch who has emasculated Harry. And Harry referred to some of the cartoons that he has seen that portray the same imagery of, you know, Harry on a dog leash that Megan is carrying him around. Harry dressed in women's clothes, whereas um, Megan is portrayed as the man. So it's this combination of hypersexualization. So Harry has no agency because he's been seduced out of his mind at this point. And then also this image of him being emasculated that, you know, even in the Clarkson article, I think um, Gerald referred to the part at the beginning where they talk about her hand being up his bum as if he is a puppet. So those are very much part of the narrative that has been created by the British media around the dynamic of their relationship. Whereas what Harry and Meghan will tell you is it's a partnership. We are a team. We move as a team and you see that with them on engagements. And I think really that's a lot of what is behind this characterization. It's the fact that Harry has said, I had to up my game in order to win this woman. And it's clear in the docuseries that he is the one who initiated (laughs) the relationship and the interest and pursued her. And so this idea that a biracial woman could be elevated by this white man, and she is now the desired being, that is part of what is driving (laughs) the British press and many of the kind of anti-Megan troll accounts mad, is that she has been elevated and put on this pedestal. We'll go to a couple more callers in a moment, by the way. Uh, Juju Gumdrops and uh, Gudrun waiting to speak to us. Uh, Mick Wright, though, somebody sent me a link to the press regulator Ipso. I just wonder if there is anything that Ipso can or is likely to do about this article. And just also talk to me as well more generally about the pushback that there has been around this. I know that the organisation Stop Funding Hate for example, who tried to encourage people to withdraw advertising from media outlets that print this sort of nonsense. They've been pretty active about this as well. So might that work? Might Ipso have something to say about this? Ipso is an entirely toothless organisation. It really is. It's very poor as was the previous iteration, the Press Complaints Commission. Yeah, well, the Press Complaints Commission, sorry to interrupt, was, of course, disbanded, wasn't it, with all the, the phone yeah, hacking allegations yeah, and, aimed to Yeah, and Ipso is the replacement. And Ipso is a very poor organisation in terms of actually pulling the press to, 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 to order because if you look at who is on 
the the committee that organizes and runs it so like you know the press itself is you know heavily involved it's not a very effective regulator it's very toothless i think the stop funding hate campaign is is quite effective in the sense that it hammers publications in the pocket you know if you make advertisers feel that these are toxic brands then that has a real effect so i do back that and i know that uh, you know members of the press argue that that's censorship but i don't think it is i think it's the public saying we find this disgusting behavior and we don't want to back brands that back this kind of stuff that is utilizing free speech to say i object to this so i will use free speech as is available to me in a capitalist society part of speech is you know holding back the money you want to spend with certain brands if they back brands like the sun you know and as i've I've said this in other places before, but, you know, the entrance of Rupert Murdoch into the British media in 1969, when he, uh, 1968, when he bought the News of the World and then he turned the sun into the sun as it is now, had a huge effect on the way British media and, the, and British public debate operates. And we should, as individuals, try and push back against this because Rupert Murdoch, this one man, has incredible power because of his wealth and we as individuals should use our financial clout as limited as it is come together and push back against it because this stuff is vile let's bring in uh, juju gumdrop hello juju welcome hello calling from france and i just need to say this disclaimer i have a um, problem with my brain have i missed so i might not make sense initially <laughs> okay i'll do my best you know, I keep hearing people talking about the facts that were laid out in the documentary and and all the facts that we know that these people are being harassed by the by the British public and the British the royal family. But we know, being a black person, I know that facts don't matter to people who are racist. Racism, um. Facts just don't matter. So what do we do? I believe, as Mick was saying, that we need, we as people need to do something about this. And today I, I thought to myself that on every platform that I write, I need to inform the royal family and Kensington Palace, both those acts, that we do not believe this, that the world is changing. You can see it when the Queen died. Years ago, had the Queen died, the whole world would be mourning. But we had people from Africa, people from Jamaica, where I'm from, people from the Caribbean, all old black people saying, no, you took our wealth and we can't mourn you. That wouldn't happen. But I think part of the reason why it is happening, one, we're growing, you know, social media, we're getting information from all over. And not only black people are standing up for them, themselves. And I think this is part of it. But anyway, what I need to say is that we need to be able to get or this message out to the royal family to say, you are myopic. You are considering just possibly not even Britain, but just England. And the world isn't like that. And when you go out, you will find that the world is on Harry and Meghan's side. Let me just say this as well, Judy. Wouldn't it really be good, given what 
Harry and Meghan have said in the documentary series, and obviously that's their account of it. That it's you know there are two sides to every story, and the the documentary is very good at putting their side of the story. Wouldn't it be great if William and Kate or King Charles, for once, broke with royal protocol and said this kind of coverage? is unacceptable. We may have had our disagreements, we may have had our differences, but this is unacceptable and we will withdraw royal cooperation from any news outlet that speaks not just about a member of the royal family, but speaks about any human being in this way. That would send out a signal, wouldn't it? Of course it would. But have you watched the documentary? You have. Yeah, yeah. The, it it has been going on from the 1960s or, or 1980s where they brought the the various news organizations within their realm and decided to have this symbiotic relationship. And it's hard to break because all of those old things will now come out. They can't. They have themselves a very, very sticky situation, but they need to do that. And if they do that, and you are very right, if they were to do that, there is no way the media would win. No way. Ada, you want to join in again? Go on, Ada. You wanted to make a comment, I think. To agree with Gigi and say, the monarchy's like main purpose is not the service that it claims to give to the British people. It's to perpetuate itself. It's to look after itself. Like That's the number one thing so even though they want to sometimes look magnanimous or they want to look like they kind of can engage with social issues like media misinformation or whatever they are never going to do anything that would potentially put the institution itself at harm so like even though I, I myself would really want them to stand up to this kind of thing and say this is unacceptable they just won't do it because they're too paranoid of the backlash nobody wants to be the one that made the monarchy end I feel you're right, Ada. I want to bring uh, Mick right back in on that. And, and kind of this, Mick, goes right to the heart of the allegations that Harry and Meghan make in the documentary, isn't it? That I, I described it right at the top as a kind of an incestuous relationship between the royal family and the British media. The, the monarchy could today cut that rope, couldn't it? It could say, we're not going to have this relationship with the media anymore. It could be outspoken <laughs> in defence of Harry, and in this case, in particular, Meghan. And it would say to the media, if you speak like this about anybody associated with us, and, and indeed, as I say, not just about members of the royal family, but about human beings, actually, we're not going to we're not going to do anything to associate ourselves with your brands. <laughs> that may that may feel impossible for them to say, but if they don't say it, they're complicit, surely, in all of this. Let's be honest. The royal family is it. Some people might like, I I think probably people listening to this space will be fine with this, but I think other people would really dislike this. But the royal family is a racist institution. Sorry, but it is. It's a racist institution. It's an institution that doesn't believe in equity for all people. How can it when its whole principle is you can emerge from a magic vagina and you are more special than other people, right? Fundamentally, this is a bigoted institution. It can only be because it is underpinned by the notion of 
is a white supremacist organization. And when you look at the relationship it has with the press, the relationship it has with the press, I've written this before, is essentially a combination of a protection racket and a suicide pact, right? Of course it's <laughs> and, not going to go. And, and Mick, Mick when, you, when, you, when you describe it as white supremacist, is that because historically then members of the royal family have all been white and therefore that whiteness perpetuates itself and you can only be a member of the royal family if you are white. Is that just so I understand why you make that? Yeah, change? yes. But also think about it just on a philosophical level. It is impossible for a monarchist truly to defend their position. Because when you come down to it, what is any royal family about? It's saying if you are born into this family, you are more special than someone else. My philosophy is that any baby that is born is as equally worthy of love, affection and care and for someone to think, what an amazing thing that this child is born, right? But a baby born into the royal family is particularly special and they're immediately put into a hierarchy when they're born. That is a supremacist way of thinking, right? And it happens to be a white supremacist way of thinking because the royal family has been a white family for hundreds of years, right? That's the problem. You know, the philosophy of royal family doesn't work, does it? Well, it works for lots of people, and it is the... Uh... But the logic cannot work. You know, it does work for lots of people, but that's like saying Scientology works for lots of people, Adrian. <laughs> it's bullshit, but it works for lots of people. <laughs> Go on, RS, I want you to come in on this. Well, I would say... I agree with Mick in that I wrote this in an article that I wrote last year talking about will the House of Windsor turn into a house of cards? It's just the basic premise is that in order to be in this elite institution, that whiteness is kind of <laughs> part of the agreement and the, the understanding. And I think part of what Megan has faced is the idea that one even though you are biracial, you are not white enough. And you add that to her being American, her being an actress, her being older than Harry, which is something that we haven't talked about, but her age was one of the initial complaints. All of those things are part of why she was considered unworthy of being in the royal family. And the fact that she was allowed to marry Harry and doesn't seem grateful enough for being admitted into royal society is the other part of why she receives so much abuse. You know, we talk about classism, and I've had debates with a, a number of people on this, but yes, classism is part of it, but inherent in classism is racism when you consider the fact that the royal family is all white, and that the treatment of Harry and Meghan has shown that for whatever people wanted to believe that hey, if you can marry someone who, you know, with Kate was is a commoner and not from the aristocracy or with Megan is a person of color. And so, again, a point of difference that all of a sudden the royal family can look more like society. What we've seen is that society and the royal family have said no. The New York Times has a good piece right now that talks about, is this the fairy tale that Britain deserves rather than the fairy tale that it wanted. When I think back to the wedding and all of the joy and the celebration and just the positive feeling, not just for the UK, but I think for people who watched it around the world 
I think what you've seen in the aftermath is that was more of an illustration of who we wanted to be versus who we are. Um, and I think who we are is, you know, if you look at the world, it's a world that has an increasing influence of populism and anti-immigrant. And you see that with Brexit and other movements around the world. You see the backlash from the Me Too movement, which was particularly strong in the UK at the time. And you see this kind of back and forth pull between what we saw with the Black Lives Matter movement and the resurgence in 2020 and the fact that the royal family refused to comment at all. And basically, Harry and Meghan were, at that time, the only ones talking about it. And Meghan, the only one talking about Black Lives Matter specifically. So I think, again, part of what you're seeing is culturally the influences that are happening in the UK right now and the push within the establishment, which for me, the establishment is both the media, the royal family, and the Tory government. There was no way that those institutions were going to allow Megan to be representative of the national identity of the UK. Interesting point made on Twitter by Sussex Royal Glow saying anti-bullying organisations should speak up. A very good point. Uh, let's bring in Gudrun, who I think is joining us from the Netherlands. Hello, Gudrun. Well, as you said, I'm living in the Netherlands and we have an Argentina queen. So uh, for years I've been following this this whole situation with Meghan and Harry. And I'm really shocked on a daily basis uh, what is written about them and that it is allowed to be written about them. And I try to understand how it is possible that these papers can fuel this hate towards a woman they really don't know. And people are saying all these crazy things about them. And about the comparison with Kate and Megan is that uh, Kate had her all adult life to prepare to be queen. And Megan had her own career and her own education and did her own work, is a self-made woman. And somehow this is not accepted in, in the UK. And that is so weird for me. Yeah, well, we're trying to understand it, really. And the, the picture that it paints of the UK is racism is written into the fabric of our nation, that we are institutionally racist. What wonders me is that when I see like what's written in the papers is like like the mirror and and all these papers they're they're showing on the internet the same story like three times a day twist the word giving uh, writing in it in this way that it gives the people a stick to hit Megan with and they never talk about the good things she does she has done so many good things. And all that is 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 gone, and and she's a terrible woman because she took Harry away. And oh my God, Diana, she would be so angry. And I think Diana is dead. We don't know what Diana would think. I mean, she's gone. Mm -hmm. So it's it's for us here in the Netherlands with our Argentina queen. We're like, we don't we don't get it. It's it's terrible to see what's happening over there. Gudrun, great to hear from you. Thank you. Uh, let's speak to Khaleesi. Hello, Khaleesi. How are you doing? 
Hi, Adrian. Um, yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Um, great space. So, so I am. I'm a little bit divided on this. I'll tell you why. I, I, I don't deny anything that's been said on this space. Um, but the, the, there's two aspects to this. There's the family aspect to it, um, in terms of the fallout within the family, and then there's the press aspect to it, and how the media have dealt with this, and and where it all merges is where the media went after Megan. You know, like. I, I just think, um, I watched the first series, I'm, I'm partway through the second, but the fact that they waited until three or four days before her wedding to to air the interview with, with her sister and her father and things like that, I think that's just that's just cruel. And this is at a time when um, the, the British mainstream media claim, if you, if you look down some of these mainstream journalists' Twitter feeds, they claim that she had... Um, unconditional praise from the media before the wedding and there wasn't an ounce of racism but I could not imagine whilst I don't want to draw a comparison between Kate and Megan I can't imagine them doing something like that to Kate um, finding a long-lost relative and then making sure I mean that would ruin any bride's day but but there's lots there's been lots of little points of hypocrisy Adrian along the way so I don't know if you remember that time when um, Megan wore some earrings that were given by MBS now the royal family gives and gets gifts from all sorts of world leaders. Um, and, and they're probably, most of them are complicit in human rights atrocities somewhere across the world. And there was so much media focus on that. Um, she was blasted for that. I think somebody's mic's open. Um, she was blasted for that. But then, but then that's where the hypocrisy came in because we do business with MBS. You know, we sell arms to Saudi. Um, we support Saudi in, in human rights massacres with Yemen, but but nobody wanted to mention that. It was all about how can Meghan Markle wear these earrings? I think it was earrings, something like that. And today I've seen like Rachel Johnson say, oh, well, this is fine what Jeremy Clarkson said because it's it's freedom of speech. And this is the this is the point of the mainstream media in this country. Their fallback is always on freedom of speech. And that's where the hypocrisy is. You know, that's freedom of speech, but you know, somebody like, and I'll just use this as an example, but if Corbyn so much has sneezed in the wrong direction, no, that's not freedom of speech. But when we say it's freedom of speech and we can actually incite violence against Meghan Markle, I'm not a fan of Meghan, but I can't believe what Jeremy Clarkson has written today. And and his editors approved it. And I, and I agree with what Mick said in terms of if so. It's toothless. It's a toothless organisation. And as far as the royal family is concerned, they are very much dependent on the media. It's, it's what Harry and Meghan have said. That part I completely accept, and it's always been the case. You know, it's a quid pro quo deal. You know, we'll write stories about you, and in return you get to stay in these palaces and the taxpayer will fund them because the stories we write will bring industry to this country and play ball with us and we'll play ball with you. They've, you know, they've kind of had this deal since, since what happened to Diana, and William was the um, architect of this kind of... Um, a formal kind of agreement. So, for example, um, when William and Harry started school, their first day, there was a swarm of photographers. Now it's protocol. One person comes, one photographer, photographer comes. He represents the entire association of photographers. They take the photos, they share it amongst the pack. And this is the pack that Harry referred to. So the royal family cannot do that because if they put out a statement, they'll be biting the hand that, you know, that feeds them. They, they just can't. Um, I think Harry and Meghan have had their say. Um, I think they've had the last laugh. I think what Jeremy Clarkson has done today will probably haunt him in years to come, not because he's got a conscience, but because people will never let him forget. I think he's lost a lot of credibility 
I'm not so sure about that, Khaleesi. And, you know, Mick thinks it will just add to the, in inverted commas, the colour and the notoriety of Jeremy Clarkson, add to his legend. Who knows? But listen, thank you. RS wants to come back on something. And I will say, by the way, RS and Mick as well, and I'm conscious here in the UK, it's getting quite late. Don't feel obliged to stay up with us, but it'd be lovely if you can, Mick. It's great to uh, have you with us both. And I'm really keen to hear more from you. RS, I know you wanted to come in on this. Yeah, I just wanted to respond to the the comments about this relationship between the press and the palace and the fact that there is, depending on who you talk to, whether it's symbiotic or parasitic or collusive, there is an existing relationship. And I would say William wasn't the architect of it, but it happened in kind of the early 2000s as the brothers were entering school and kind of moving into adulthood. But one of the things that I would point to, which really struck me watching the docuseries and then also just my own observation watching the past six years, if anyone is familiar with Mark Boland, who was Prince Charles's press secretary back in that early 2000s period after Princess Diana died, he is notorious for creating a strategy to trade stories against other members of the royal family in order to get better press for Prince Charles and Camilla. And in order to usher in Camilla as Prince Charles's, you know, girlfriend in public, and then make this transition to bringing her as accepted as his wife. And so what I see very much, and for folks who haven't seen the documentary Reinventing the Royals, which came out in 2015, they talk very explicitly with reporters who were there at the time at some of the stories that were seeded by Mark Boland and Prince Charles's press office that were negative stories about Harry, negative stories about other members of the royal family and, you know, his siblings in order to elevate Charles. And what we see now, kind of in modern day, is Prince William's former press secretary, Jason Knopf, and his private secretary, Simon Case, doing very much a similar strategy. And they detail that in the BBC documentary, The Princes in the Press, where they talk about how the media narratives that you see are also narratives that are coming directly from the palace of, hey, we're trying to position William and Kate on their roles as future king and queen consort. And in order to do that, we want you to lay off them and focus any of your ire and kind of the negative stories on Harry and Meghan. And you had, you know, no less than five different royal reporters come on on Princes in the Press and say that. And so to me, it's not just a, oh, the the Palisades have gone rogue, or it's not just a case of the media. It really is a collaborative effort in order to place narratives and create these characterizations of, you know, here's the villain and here's the hero. And not unsurprisingly, the hero is always the heir and their spouse. Again, when you talk about the relationship between the palace and the press, that's part of the problem. The fact that you had someone from William's office, one of his you know senior staff and Jason Knopf, actually come and provide evidence to the Daily Mail unsolicited against Megan in her copyright infringement case. That is wild to me. 
and and is gone mostly untalked about because no one in the press really wants to talk about the fact that you had someone within the palace staff who is going against another member of the royal family, presumably with William's permission. Like, I couldn't imagine that. But then I went back and actually looked and Mark Boland, he <laughs> went against Charles. And when Charles had a lawsuit on the journals, because the Mail on Sunday released the journals that he had written about Hong Kong in the transition, Mark Boland provided testimony against Charles in support of the Mail on Sunday. The key difference is at that point, Mark Boland was no longer in Charles's employ. He was let go, and this was part of his attempt to kind of uh, get retribution. Whereas Jason Knopf was and still is a member of Prince William's team, and that goes, you know, widely <laughs> unacknowledged. Uh, and Mick, this moment, I think, would sensibly be a moment. <laughs> to look at the British media and the health or otherwise of the British media to demand change in the way it's structured, the way it's owned, the interest that it represents. But of course, the political class in this country, in some cases, come from the media. Uh, Peter Dukes at Byline Times has talked about the punditocracy, these former journalists who have been senior figures in our country in the last few years, people like Boris Johnson and Michael Gove. Politicians of all colours, certainly from the mainstream parties, of course, desperate for the endorsement of the mainstream newspapers, or at least desperate not to earn the opposition of the mainstream papers. So they're not going to challenge the media on this, are they? Or or not in a structural way. They may criticise, for example, Clarkson's article. I'm sure I've seen Lisa Nandy, senior Labour MP, criticising Clarkson's article. But the structural issue that allows and, in your words, enables this to happen, that's not going to be challenged by Conservative, Labour, Lib Dem, any of the main parties, is it? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, you know, Keir Starmer said during the leadership campaign to become leader of the Labour Party that he wouldn't do interviews with the Sun. He said that in a Liverpool hustings. Of course, Liverpool is still a city where the Sun sells virtually no coffees because of its abhorrent coverage of Hillsborough. And then once he became leader, he immediately started touting for business in the Sun as he touts for business in the Daily Telegraph, as he prostrates himself in front of the Daily Mail. We've got a huge problem here. And we also have a huge problem with the relationship between the broadcasters and the newspapers. Because, for instance, with the BBC, the BBC treats the newspapers as if they're friends rather than commercial entities yeah. that it has to interact with. That's a huge problem. Laura Koonsberg this morning on her programme Sunday with Laura Koonsberg, she had... Victoria Newton, the editor of The Sun, on the programme, and she did not ask her at all about the Clarkson column. She talked to her about Harry and Meghan, allowed Victoria Newton to claim that, in fact, The Sun had been very kind to Harry and Meghan and done them a great favour by not doxing the venue of Meghan's Hindu. But it's, it was incredible. And I've spoken to people within the BBC today who said to me, well, I mean, it's not likely that they agreed that they wouldn't mention the Clarkson column. But actually, that makes it worse because Laura Koonsberg, as a journalist, did not ask the question. And it cannot, 
it cannot be said that she didn't know about it because it's, it's not just a social media storm, if you want to dismiss it like that. It's been reported in all the other newspapers. There's been a lot of debate around what Clarkson said. And Laura Koonsberg sat there with the editor of The Sun and didn't ask that question. Now, I've been a journalist since 2005, and I can tell you now that it is bizarre for someone to not follow a news line like that. And Adrian, I mean, what would you say? You, you know, you've been a journalist for a long time. Can you imagine having an interviewee like that sat in front of you and you don't ask the question, well, what about this column? Well, I'm a great believer of, uh, what's the phrase? Never attribute to conspiracy what you can put down to cock up. But I would say, though, if I'd come off air and not asked a question about the biggest story of the day in some respects, having had one of the people responsible for that story in front of me, I'd find it very difficult to look myself in the mirror. The other aspect here, Adrian, of course, is, again, as you know, is that Koonsberg is not running Sunday with Laura Koonsberg on her own. She has an editor. There's a gallery there. She has in her ear an earpiece. And I'm sorry, but like, I also spoke to people I know at Sky News, and I said, hey, look, if you had the opportunity to speak to the editor of The Sun today, would you have asked her about the Clarkson column? And of course they said, well, absolutely we would have. It's not just the tabloids that are the problem here. It is insane to me that the national broadcaster failed its public today, failed the public today, because, look, you know, we've got a load of people in this space tonight and nobody who watched the Koonsberg programme this morning was thinking, oh, there's the editor of The Sun there. That's not odd that she didn't ask them about the Clarkson column. You know, we're all talking about it. How in hell does the BBC not ask the editor of The Sun, well, how do you justify this? Because she may not edit The Sun on Sunday, she doesn't, but she's the overall editor of The Sun, and she wasn't asked that question. That is a huge failing in journalism, and it's a big problem because it shows you something which is about media solidarity and political class solidarity. The politicians and prominent people in the media, they have a solidarity amongst themselves, and they have conversations that they see fit, not the conversations that we, the public, who see this apparent journalism going on, want to see happen. It's a huge issue. And I might sound unhinged, you know, going on about this, but I really think it's a huge problem. You know, Laura Koonsberg's paying a lot of money, ultimately public money, and she didn't ask that question this morning. That is a scandal in itself. This is a comment from Abina. RS saying that this is radicalization by media. I feel that they are pushing the boundaries to see at what point the royal pushback will come. It never will. And so the end game is clear. They want to unalive the Sussexes and Meghan in particular. Now that sounds very dramatic. And if you watch the documentary series, the Sussexes really have concerns for their safety. And the point at which they quit the UK is the point at which royal protection will be removed from them. So, and at, at times you think, well, you know, are they exaggerating this? But we do know that there are people out there, sadly, who will do evil things. And 
the kinds of comment that Clarkson made in his article may just be the kind of thing that would push an unhinged person, to borrow Mick's phrase, into committing some unspeakable, horrific act? Yes. We've seen the comments from Harry and Meghan within the docuseries, but even earlier, I think I mentioned it in our last space, but last week before the volume one came out, the former UK head of counterterrorism, who is responsible for royal security with the Met Police, he talked about the threats that Harry and Meghan, and specifically Meghan, had faced, and that they were multiple, and that they were real and serious threats, and that people had been prosecuted for it. So I think back, you know, again, as we talk about this narrative of Meghan being welcomed with open arms, before the wedding, they got an anthrax death threat. Luckily, it was a hoax and it wasn't real anthrax in there. But what an engagement gift to give to somebody, you know, welcome to the royal family. Here's your death threat. So when I think about what this vitriol in the media and kind of what it stirs up and the type of comments that, again, have been allowed to just go unchecked, comments from, again, royal reporters and mainstream as well as tabloid. So I agree with Mick there that at this point, we're talking about the British press as a whole. Julie Dublin makes a really interesting point, actually, on Twitter, just picking up on this theme of, you know, free speech, which has been the defence of Clarkson by Rachel Johnson on LBC today. Julie Dublin saying freedom of speech led to the radicalisation of two people who murdered the parliamentarians, Joe Cox and David Amos. We must ask Rachel Johnson to explain. And this is where, I've got, you know, I think everybody listening to this space will believe in a version of free speech, but not an absolutist version of free speech, not the kind of version of free speech that Elon Musk professes to support, which allows people to spread lies and propaganda and misinformation. The the old saying goes, you know, freedom of speech, but you're not free to shout fire in a crowded theatre. Because if people stampede to the exits, they may get hurt. And that's, you know, there is just a sensible, intelligent line to be drawn Yes, you should be able to express your opinion. Yes, you should be able to say that you don't like particular individuals and explain why. But there's a level of language that can be incendiary. And anybody who is honest about the discussion around free speech will know that and will understand that. And I guess I would point to what some of the other speakers have said, that really what we've seen in the media is that It's freedom of speech as long as it's about um, somebody that I don't like. And so the defenses for Carrie Johnson when she was pregnant, for Prince Andrew and others, as these are people whose value as humans supersede what they have done, that has been the positioning that we've seen in the media for a lot of people. And yet when it comes to women of color, Um, whether that be Diane Abbott, whether that is Meghan Markle or others, that same sense of value isn't put on them just as a basic right. And so for me, you know, I think about just some of the press abuse that was happening 
back in you know late 2019, early 2020, when the height of the smear campaign against Megan while she was a working royal, and she was pregnant during that whole time, and still doing royal engagement, still going on royal tours, and there was no pushback of, hey, this is a pregnant woman <laughs> who we are crucifying in the press, and yet when you see other women in the media who are protected, that's the part that it comes back to for me is who is considered worthy of protection and who isn't. Black women never make that cut. So I was really touched by seeing Doria Raglan, Megan's mother, again in volume two, talking about what it meant to her to hear from Megan that she had, you know, had these suicidal ideations and wanted to take her life. And, you know, I remember again, in the, the summer of 2019, when the British press were going on and on about Harry and Meghan being hypocrites about taking private jets and things like that um, in August of 2019, the thing that people didn't talk about was the next month you had Doria Raglan running in a suicide prevention 5K, happy that her daughter was still alive. Uh, Drac, hello, Drac, welcome. Hi, thanks so much. I would like to contribute to the conversation, but what I would like to focus on is the press, because what I believe the royal rota are supposed to do is to report on what the royal family does. But as an outsider looking on the inside of the UK, whenever I Google the royal family or anything they do, there is a lot of gossip in comparison to the actual work that they do. And it just takes me back to... Um, the work they're paid to do. Um, is it worth really the 40 hours? Is, do they really do the work in the first place? Such so that most of the time, the, the columns about the royals can only be filled by gossip and not what they do. There are many of them who are taking these responsibilities or the royal roles the work they do. Do we need so many of them to be in this working position? This is another question that I asked myself. And do we need a big press pack like we have, such that there, there are stories that are up for grabs and everyone wants to give out something and give a column in whichever newspaper they're working for? And maybe there's a catalyst of these stories that you're having that are really negative, such that it goes to the personal lives. For example, I, I'm just looking at this is the highest state office mm. of the UK. And when you Google, what comes up is somebody crying during the wedding, someone distressed, someone moving pieces so that Meghan moves to Africa, uh, people suspecting why she's getting married into that family, Kate's clothes, Friends of William saying there is a rift and probably, I mean, all this noise, it's really a bad reflection on the highest office of the land. This is how I'm looking at it. Like, let something sensible come out of it. There is genuine need for change, to be honest. And they should realize that as much as they don't want to change. But when someone speaks of the head of state, all people know about is gossip. Thank you, Drat. This is an interesting point. I mean, Mick, you spoke about royal correspondence in general, didn't you? What kind of, uh, what kind of job is that for a journalist? 
yeah, I said before in the previous space, if you become a royal correspondent, it is not a promotion, it's a demotion. You cease to be involved in acts of journalism. You are involved in, at best, gossip columnist, at worst, a stenographer. I used examples previously, Nicholas Witchell, one of the people who started News at 10, but yeah, he's seen as quite laughable now for his royal reporting. And the same with Johnny Diamond, a man who previously was known for his reporting on 9-11, is now known as someone who did quite a large rant on the World at One the other day about the Meghan and Harry documentary. It is kind of embarrassing, royal reporting. I think royal reporting isn't proper, because when you look at royal reporters, they rarely report things that are difficult or contentious for the royal family. And the reason is that they are the ultimate access reporters. They exist to have access to the royal family and to report about the royal family through that access. They can't do proper reporting. So reporting around things like, you know, the late queen getting herself exempted from equality laws, that all came out from general news reporters because the royal reporters can't do that. Because if they do... They're no longer a royal reporter. Yeah, exactly. It's farcical. You know, an environmental reporter, a sports reporter, uh, any other kind of news reporter can write critical stories about the subject that they write on. But rural reporters can't do that. The whole thing is quite ludicrous and they cannot admit that. And they will contradict themselves, tie themselves in knots to argue, oh, um, we don't get negative stories from the palace, even as you can go back through their archives and see that they were saying palace sources tell us X, Y and Z about Harry and Meghan. So their their own archive copy shows that what Harry and Meghan said in the documentary is accurate in respect of negative stories coming out of the palace. And then they literally gaslight their readers by saying, well, no, um, no, that's not true. And we never did that. A simple search shows that that's true. So it's kind of ludicrous. Let's bring in Livy. Hello, Livy. Livy Lydia. Hello. Hi. Thank you for the opportunity to speak. Um, Mick actually just touched on one of the points I wanted to make. And that being going back to the whole royal family and their connection to white supremacy, I'd like to ask the laws that they had that prevented them from being held accountable for racial discrimination within the family or the firm, are those still on the books? Secondly, they also had a hiring... Yes, they are. Okay, so if those are still on the books, then essentially they haven't departed from their white supremacist practices. You know, we can't look at that as a historical issue anymore because it's currently an active law. Secondly, their hiring practices, which um, I think that it it prevented them from hiring people of color in positions of, um, or senior positions. And at one point, the media was saying, well, they stopped that in the 1950s. My question to that would be, if the positions they hire for are generally hereditary positions, which are passed down from family member to family member, and you're, you're only hired people, um, white people, excuse me, well, when those laws were on the book, what opportunities then become open to people of color to then be hired in those senior roles? So that would be my first couple of questions. My second point would be uh, freedom of speech does not prevent you from freedom of, it doesn't mean freedom of consequences. And hearing the media talk about freedom of speech, 
Why is it when it comes to Meghan and Harry, they don't have the same right to, to, to speak about themselves? Why is it everything they say is policed and they're being told to shut up and royal sources and royal commentators are giving you one side of the story and that side of the story only matches what looks good to the royal family? Um, I have a couple of points. My next point <laughs> is, I think we need to call the royal family out on their lack of um, action. And when I'm not just talking about this Jeremy Clarkson comment, I'm talking about everything going right back. If you even want to go back to the Diana days of the, excuse me, the way they allow the media to basically, the media is basically their um, enforcer, the enforcer arm of the royal family. And the fact, to me, it seems like they're getting away with just sitting there and hiding behind the media under the pretense that they can't speak. Well, if you can't speak, how are royal sources speaking for you? How do we know that Johnny Diamond went to the BBC to claim that the Queen was upset that Harry named his four-day-old daughter after her pet name? Why are those things that are in the public? And if that's the case then just come on record and speak and stop pretending that you can't speak because you can. 99.9% .9 of the stories that we're hearing are coming from your royal sources. When we're hearing, oh, Prince Charles is looking forward to having Harry come to his coronation. Who is that coming from? You can't tell me that the royal family can't speak, but you're telling me what you know is supposed to be happening coming from the royal family. So that's the um, another point. And my final point is this Clarkson comment. To me, this Clarkson comment kind of um, functions like the way we, we talk about racism. This Clarkson comment, it, we're on it because it's quite obvious. We're on it because it's quite upsetting. It's quite in your face. Kind of like the way they say, you know what, if someone says the N-word, you know for a fact it's the N-word and people jump on it. But when someone walks, changes to the other side of the street and clutch their purse, when they see a person of color coming, you don't consider that racism, right? So this Clarkson comment to me is similar way, and I'm not comparing them to it to racism by any way, shape or form. I'm just saying that in terms of how we as a society are reacting, we are reacting to it because it's quite obvious and in our faces and we can sit there and go, oh my God, who, why, why would he say something like that? However, ITV sat there and gave Pierce Morgan a platform to spend years trashing Megan for what amounted to being a personal issue with Megan. They allowed him to use his professional job to exact revenge on her. We sat there and watched and continued to watch a Me Too movement live in action. And nobody called it out. And when it finally got to the point where people responded, Oxcom said, oh, well, somebody pushed back. So that was good enough. I watched Jer um, Jeremy Vine do a 10-minute panel on Meghan Markle claiming that she said she couldn't find the answers to the citizenship question. 10 minutes we had supposedly sane, rational, intelligent people chiding her, talking about, oh, she could have just Googled it. She could have just did this. She could have just done that. She never said that, right? Carol Malone, like, I mean, we can name all of them. So what I'm saying with that is 
Yes, we are now focusing on this one comment, but he's just a small symptom in a larger issue. And it's not just limited to the tabloid press. It goes across to the BBC. It goes across pretty much to every platform. And I think we, going back to what I said about the royal family, the fact that we keep letting them get away with this, and this is going back to even when the queen was alive, you know, never explain, never complain, and they get to hide away from that and shy away from things um, is part and parcel why we, we are here today, because we are not asking these people who present themselves as the moral center of, of the British society to stand up and speak out. You cannot claim that you are champions of mental health, champions of violence against, against women, um, early years champions any kind of champion of any kind of social justice cause, and you sit there and allow the media to essentially trash and denigrate people, not just Meghan and Harry, but pretty much anyone they choose to denigrate in society, and you say nothing. And with that, I'm going to mute and say thank you. Livy, <laughs> Lydia, thank you. Uh, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll come to RS uh, for some closing comments. I know a lot of you want to talk and we may continue this discussion tomorrow. I think there's a, an appetite for it. The thing is, Mick, you and I, in hosting this broadcast here in the UK, we're putting our heads above the parapet. And I don't know if people in the Mail and the Sun will be listening to this. If they are... It wouldn't amaze me if they found ammunition to attack you or to attack me. And that's the kind of slightly scary thing about kind of this country at the minute, really. Well, I couldn't give a fuck, really, what the Daily Mail or the Sun think about me. I've made myself into a media critic. I've been a professional journalist, like I said, since 2005. And I've written for all sorts of places, including Daily Telegraph for a while. I've written for The Guardian, The Times, lots of places. And the reason I turned from poacher to gamekeeper is because I see a huge problem with the media. And I'm, I'm willing to say it because I think there's a problem. And I think it's a real problem. And I think we have to say it. And I appreciate that you do it as well, Adrian. It's, it, they can attack us personally. But ultimately, we know that what is being done here is morally abhorrent. It, it is. And yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and, and it has been since, you know, we know that Leveson was an attempt to try and fix this and they prevented Leveson 2 happening which would have looked into the relationship between the press and the police and other public bodies should have happened it didn't and ultimately what happened was it went back to the same thing you look at how often the prime minister meets Rupert Murdoch meets Lord Rothermere meets Evgeny Lebedev there are a very small number of mostly men very rich men who control the press and the British media and then broadcasters run their editorial agendas on the basis of what the press says, even though the newspapers are increasingly read by fewer people. And when we look at this specific issue around Meghan and Harry, this thing of, oh, Meghan and Harry are almost as unpopular as Andrew. Well, yes, because day in, day out, they are represented inaccurately in the British media. And you can fact check that and show that they are represented inaccurately and i said the other day in a tweet which caused some people you know to really miss the point i said look you can consider megan to be irritating or you consider her to be self-obsessed it's an option for you to say that and when i said that i didn't mean as some people thought that i think that 
But what I'm saying is that would be within the reasonable bounds of criticism. They remain public figures. They're kind of stuck being public figures. And they just did a six-part documentary. And as part of that, they said a lot of things. And you can, within the bounds of reasonable criticism, say, I found that irritating or I don't agree with what they said here or there. But when someone like Jeremy Clarkson says, I would like to see her paraded naked through the streets and have shit thrown at her, that is beyond the bounds of reasonable comment. And in a society that had a a moral core to it, more people would be saying this is disgusting. And coming back to what you said at the start of this question to me, Adrian, this thing of we could get attacked by the Sun, Daily Mail, the you know, whatever these papers. Yeah, because there are too many people in our industry, journalism, who are cowards. It is cowardice not to criticize this. And it's something I brought up a few times recently. But my friend Dawn Foster, a journalist who had been a columnist for The Guardian, had been, uh, was a working class woman who became a successful journalist. She died very young. And Giles Corrin mocked her death on Twitter. And writers for The Times and other places just didn't come out and criticize that. So it didn't surprise me that people didn't come out and criticize what Clarkson said about Meghan Markle because we are unfortunately dealing with a journalistic and media industry that is full of cowardly people who are afraid that they might lose their opportunity to be interviewed by the times or to get a column with the sun. And it is about moral cowardice. You know, we are well entitled to say you find Meghan Markle irritating. You're not entitled to publish racist invective or hateful invective or invective that ask, you know, fantasizes about a woman being stripped naked and and pelted with excrement in the street. Uh, On Twitter, Chrissy says there is free speech and there is hate inciting speech. And I would say some opinions are vile and unacceptable. The media abuse this lady gets is dangerous. He has crossed a line. Megan, whether you like her or not, is a human being, a mother, daughter and wife. RS, how do you think this row makes the UK look to people in the States and elsewhere? I think broadly, as the invective and just kind of the vitriol has escalated, it's almost become, on the one hand, a running joke. You'll see tweets and memes of, you know, how will this thing that happened in the UK be blamed on Meghan Markle? That is now just a standard running joke for anything, whether it be a a World Cup loss or something happening in UK society culturally. So for me, what I look at is whether it be Jeremy Clarkson or Sarah Vine or Pierce Morgan, all of these people, you're continuing to prove what Harry and Meghan said as accurate, that there was really this press campaign setting her up as the villain. So I think what we're seeing kind of in the U.S. and also just kind of more broadly than even the U.S. is you see this framing after the docuseries. And even if you go back to when they stepped back as working royals, you see it time and time again as the media tries to circle the wagons for themselves. Because part of the anger is that they are being criticized and have been rightfully, in my mind, pointed out the coverage has been racist. And so you have reporters and media members who are standing up for themselves and their organizations. And then at the same time, you have them in cooperation with the palace trying to say the things that the palace won't. So, you know, Roy Anika from the Sunday Times, he wrote that the palace is remaining silent and will continue not to have a comment about the docuseries. 
And yet in the same article had 12 different people who were friends, former staff and current staff who were just railing against Harry and Meghan. And that is the dynamic that continues to be at play here. And I think more and more, the conversation that I'm seeing is that what Harry and Meghan said in the documentary in terms of the issues with the media and the racist coverage, that there's not a lot of question about that anymore. Now it's a question of, was it okay for them to say it because of free speech? Was it okay for them to say it because they did the Oprah interview? So it's a lot of revisionist history of wanting to start the clock only at March of 2021 when they did the Oprah interview and forgetting everything that happened in the five years before then and everything that's happened since. I would agree with Mick in terms of where I think the focus of the docuseries and what they were trying to accomplish is really coming back to this airing of the relationship between the media and the palace. You know, as I've said, I think that's really the focus for Prince Harry specifically. And he talked about the fact that he and William had agreed when they formed their own office within Kensington Palace that the type of kind of backbiting and briefing against households and the things that they had seen in then Prince Charles's office when it was at Clarence House, that they weren't going to do that. And that his disappointment was in seeing William's staff and that office kind of fall into those same molds. And so you have to ask the question of once you see this thing become a pattern, how many times does it have to happen before you say that that is an institutional issue versus it just being a, a problem with an individual? And I think too often that's what we've seen happen, whether it be Jeremy Clarkson or others, where it's, oh, you know, that was just one. Danny Baker is often pointed to as, oh, that was just one and he was fired. And they forget the part where he got hired back and got, you know, a standing ovation and a sold out crowd at his first comic show. So it's this sense of, no, it's not just that individual. It is a systemic problem within the institution, drawing back to the, the conversation we had earlier about if the goal is to promote this one family, and even within the family, just the heirs within the family. And in doing that, it's about promoting a white supremacist philosophy. How can that stand? And that, I think, is an issue and a problem that the country will continue to wrestle with. RS, it's been great to hear from you. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us from the United States. Really good to have you on. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you also to uh, Mick Wright. Uh, thank you, Mick. Broken Bottle Boy on Substack. Uh, thank you to everybody who has taken part. Many of you I know want to get on, but I want to keep it fresh. I'm sure we'll return to this subject. I did promise, by the way, in the preamble to this, that this would be the uh, the last word on Harry and Meghan. I don't think it will be somehow, forgive me, but I'm sure we'll be back here on a space very soon talking about this and other subjects. So do follow us at Byline Radio. Don't forget to download episodes of the Byline Times podcast as well. You get details there over at Byline Times pod. And don't forget, all of this is supported by subscriptions to the Byline Times. It's our brilliant monthly newspaper. And if you want to subscribe to that, subscriptions start from as little as £3 a month. You not only get a great monthly newspaper, but you're also helping to support our work here at the Byline Times podcast 
and Byline Radio. So thanks, everybody. And when we post this at Byline Radio, the recording of this, please share it far and wide. Good night to you all. And with love and thanks, take care. Cheers now. Bye-bye.